If you want to open up to Philippians, it's kind of in the middle of the New Testament, sort of. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, that's kind of the bulk, uh, the chunk of books that it's in. So you can open there. This uh, letter is short, and it's quick-hitting. At times when you read it, it seems like Paul's a little bit scatterbrained. He's all over the place, yet he does sort of pull it together. It's only four chapters. Uh, It's 104 verses. But this little letter may have the highest ratio of shareable sayings per chapter in the Bible. Some of these things that you've likely heard before in chapter 1, Paul writes, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Later in chapter 2, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Chapter 3, but one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Perhaps one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible also comes from Philippians, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I had a youth leader and friend who used that for everything growing up. I don't know if I can finish this pizza, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Facetiously, of course, he's a good leader. And of course, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, which we'll read through a little bit today. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a, a, an important little letter for us. And throughout this series, we're going to refer back to things like the genre of the text. We'll see that this is a friendship letter, which is a, a specific kind of letter in that day. Uh, we're going to come back to, of course, the, the context of where Paul is. I think that's one of the more important things even in this letter. And he's writing from a prison cell. We'll talk about the city of Philippi a little bit. It was an important Roman city where where your identity as a Roman citizen was super important. And we'll talk about the church that was there. And we can actually read about how this church was planted in Acts chapter 16. But one of the really important things about this letter, and and as I was looking ahead a few weeks to to, uh, decide this is where we were going to go and preach, I had met with... Uh, our district superintendent, Russ Wilson, and he said, uh, you know, this has been a really important letter to me in the last little bit. He's had a handful of different uh, challenges, one of them being with his health. And he said, you know what, this, this letter has just encouraged me so much. And it's, it's the only letter of Paul that he's not writing to correct something. It's like, okay, that's, that's interesting. Most of Paul's other letters, in fact, all of his other letters are more like, listen, I've heard this is going on. You need to stop that. Sort yourselves out and, and, and deal with this thing. But this letter is different. And as we read it, I think we'll start to see, and I think it's pretty safe to say that, that this church was Paul's favorite church. If he could have a favorite church, this was it, of all the ones he planted. There's something about it. He deeply loves this church and its people. And so even, uh, even though this letter takes the form of a, a friendship letter, it's more than that. It's so much more than that. This is a, a little letter written by Paul to, a, uh, to encourage a church, even though he's sitting in a prison cell. Philippians has, has often been called the epistle of joy, and yes, joy leaps off of these pages, but it's way more than that as well. 
I'll probably say this half a dozen times, but again, Paul is sitting in a prison cell and not a white collar, you know, three square meals a day exercise time cell that we have today. He's in like a dungeon, a Roman hole in the ground. No question he watched the executioner walk by day after day, knowing that one day he was going to come and knock on his gate and it would be for him. And so he's facing his own death. But beyond that, outside of his own circumstances in that cell, his leadership in the church is being contested from other places as well. So he's wrestling through all of this. Meanwhile, the church he's writing to is now in in a place where we would call Northern Greece and Philippi. Again, this was an important city in, in the Roman Empire. And allegiance to Rome was everything for them. And so simply saying in that city, Jesus Christ is Lord, would directly contradict what you're supposed to say as Caesar is Lord, would be considered treasonous, and it could cost you everything. Yet, Paul talks about the Lord Jesus Christ right in his intro. And so what we have here is, as one writer put it, we have an aging religious gadfly. A troublesome ne'er-do-well. An old man sitting in a prison cell, perhaps with breaking health, sitting and scribbling on a piece of parchment to a group of Christians in Philippi who were discouraged and fearful because of Paul's imprisonment for preaching the gospel. And so as we read this letter over the next eight weeks or so, when he, if we want to know how to read this letter, we can think of it as Paul writing to a group of young, scared, and discouraged Christians because he's in prison for preaching the gospel. So with that as a bit of an outline and introduction, can you see how this letter might be relevant to us today? Any thoughts of how? I'd love to hear from you. We had some, some great answers last night, so I would expect greatness this morning as well. See how this might be relevant to us today? Let me ask a couple questions to sort of get our minds going. Is it easy to be a Christian in today's world? Yes? No? No. Is it easy to be a Christian in a public school or university or, I don't know how, in a town hall or something? If, if we follow Christ today, we will run into opposition. Think about trying to stand up for the biblical standard of gender or marriage. So hopefully this letter will help us to live courageously. Another question we've talked about quite frequently, where are we going for true joy? Where are you going for true joy? Again, Paul radiates joy in his writing here, yet he's writing from a prison cell, and he's saying, listen, if I can rejoice in this, you can as well. So he reminds us that ultimate joy isn't derived from comfortable circumstances, but from a living and vibrant communion with Christ. Paul doesn't say, look at my house, look at my job, look at my wife, look at my kids, look at my bank account, look at the new toys I just bought, and then rejoice with me in those things. But he says, look at Jesus just like I'm trying to do, and rejoice with me. Third, where do we go to find meaning in life? Where do we go to find our identity? Paul says, for me, living is Christ and dying is gain. And that's, that's, that's the better thing. 
I heard a story, if you've heard of Francis Chan, uh, he's one of these guys that, that talks about eternity a lot, that we live these 80 years or so for the next 80 billion years to try and set up that eternity time. And so they've taught their kids this and they, they try to have this eternal perspective. And he says that he was uh, on a flight somewhere with uh, one of his daughters who was 9 or 10, I think, at the time. And, and as they're sitting, buckling up, getting ready to go, uh, she leans over to him and says, Hey, Dad, wouldn't it be great if the plane crashed? Because then we could be with Jesus. He's like, let's not talk about that. Yes, we would be with Jesus, but this isn't the time to have that. For me, living is Christ, dying is gain. And so this little letter that that Paul has written isn't just some message from a prisoner to a little church some 2,000 years ago, but this is the living word of God that cries out to us today as well. It's not just an epistle of joy, even though there is joy in it. This is about fearlessly advancing the gospel with joy and working together in partnership. Paul's overarching concern here is with the gospel. And so he writes to encourage this church then and us now about the the glorious nature of the gospel that, that we as believers have to both defend and declare. This little four-chapter letter, he writes about the sovereignty of God and salvation. That He writes about the person and the work of Jesus. He writes about the righteousness of Jesus that gets credited to us by our faith. He writes about sanctification. That's God making us more like him. He writes about our citizenship in heaven. He talks about the kingdom and unity and generosity and more and more. So this is a hugely important little letter. So we're going to spend a few weeks in it. This morning, we're going to look at the first 11 verses. So again, if you have your Bible, open up there, and I'll read verses 1 to 11 of Philippians chapter 1 for us. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now this is kind of a typical letter opening of the days. We find out who's writing it, we find out who it's being written to, There's a greeting, there's a thanksgiving or a prayer, yet Paul transforms these categories into Christ-exalting categories, as we'll see. He says that it's about Jesus, and and, and exalting Christ is the key to understanding what it means to be a a Christian minister like Paul and Timothy. He identifies them not just as Paul and Timothy, your pastors, but as servants or slaves of Christ. You can circle that word, servants. Servants. He says that Christ exalted is the key to unlocking our identity as Christians. He doesn't just say to the church, he says to the saints at the church. You could circle saints there. He says Christ exalted is the key to to unlocking the fountain of grace and peace, which comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he goes on at the end and says that Christ exalted is the high point of history and holiness in verses 10 and 11. So let's dig into this deep opening. In verses 1 and 2, again, Paul and Timothy are both mentioned as the authors here, but as we keep reading, we find out that, that Timothy was probably there, but Paul is doing the writing to this church. He's, he's the primary author. And again, it's, it's really important how they identify themselves. Paul and Timothy, not pastors, not your leaders, so follow us, but as servants of Christ Jesus. In the original Greek that Paul would have been writing, and the word for servants is doulos, uh, normally that word gets translated as slave or slaves. And so Paul, in a prison cell, with Timothy, they're celebrating their identity as slaves for Christ or servants of Christ. Now, when one was in that role, if you were serving a master, if you were a slave in a household in, in those days, how you served your master informed every aspect of your life which hints at what it means to follow Jesus a little bit, doesn't it? And so this idea of being a servant for Christ reminds us of the the upside-down power of Christianity, the upside-down kingdom that Jesus came to build. No one in the ancient world would celebrate themselves being slaves or servants. Today, it's not much different. Yet here they are celebrating this. And this was a key teaching of Jesus, wasn't it? To be a servant. We can see, especially in his own example, of coming to serve and not to be served. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to even give my life as a ransom for many. And so we'll see more of Paul speaking of this status of servant and slave as he follows Jesus' example, especially as we get into chapter 2 in a couple of weeks. But notice, too, again, what Paul's doing with this intro to his letter. He is hundreds of miles away from this church he loves, from his dearly loved friends. Yet he says, even just in this little intro, I'm thinking about you. I pray for you all the time. I'm writing this letter to you to remind you that I'm still with you. I thank God for you. I'm going to send, we find later, I'm going to send Epaphroditus and Timothy to you. He's encouraging them. He's serving them like crazy in the context he can in a prison cell. See, a huge piece of what it means to follow Jesus is to serve others, to be other-centric. And then look as well in the next little bit of how he addresses the church he's writing to. Again, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. The first emphasis is on this all. The topic of unity is going to be an important one that shows up again and again in this letter. And then he goes on and calls them saints. I don't know about you, but when, when I think of saints, I either think of a New Orleans football team or some saints from the you know, Catholic or Orthodox church. And the process of becoming a saint, I looked it up this week, the first thing you have to do to become a saint in the Catholic church is you have to die, like actually die, and be dead for like five years usually. And once that's happened, people can start making a case for you to become a saint. You have to have been seen to be a servant of God. You have to have seen to have heroic virtue. You have to have verified miracles that kind of went along with you and your life and your ministry. But Paul is addressing all the people as saints in Christ Jesus. This is different. We can flip back again in our Bibles to Acts 16. We can see how this church was planted. But the the short version is the first three members we have kind of named or depicted for us in Acts 16 is we've got Lydia, who's a wealthy businesswoman who who opened up her house to to house the church. 
Uh, we have a servant girl that Paul had cast a demon out of. And we have a Roman jailer. Now that is an eclectic group that crossed over all sorts of different demographic barriers. And I would suggest that if that's how they started, they probably continued to grow just as eclectically. Yet Paul calls them saints. Not because they've got it all figured out, but because they're following Jesus. Because they're finding their identity in who Jesus says they are. One writer says uh, that the Philippians are saints through their union with Christ teaches them as well to, to treasure their Christian identity above their earthly identity. Philippi was a Roman colony, and the people from Philippi prided themselves in their Roman citizenship. Yet Christ reigns far above all earthly powers, and thus the Philippians should exalt far more in the fact that they are saints in Christ and citizens of his kingdom. The fact that they happen to live in Philippi means, however, that they must carry out their kingdom citizenship in the context of Rome's pretentious claims of allegiance. Now, we just had a friend come visit us from South Africa. He happened to have a British passport, so it made it reasonably easy for him to get into the country to to come for his... He actually came for his brother's wedding and then came to visit us. But his wife, trying to travel on just a South African passport, made it hard. Something that we as... Canadians, typically, that that allegiance to Canada, that identity as Canadians, it opens up a whole lot of doors for us. But the most important identifier is not what's on our passport. It's our identity in Christ. And that's what Paul's saying to them, too. Listen, you are in the city which is in the most powerful empire in the world right now, but none of that is important. What's most important is your identity in Christ. Paul then wraps up his greeting by sending grace and peace. Now, often when we talk about grace, we use some sort of a definition that's something like, God gives us something that we don't deserve, which is true and good and right, but it's even more than that. It's, it's as one writer said, uh, grace is actually, while we were running away from God, he put a rescue plan into motion for us and then gave us what we don't deserve. The greeting of peace goes on to remind us of the the staggering truth that because of Jesus' work on the cross, we who were once willful enemies of God now enjoy peace with him. He says grace and peace, these are gospel gifts that only come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a fantastic, just loaded little introduction to the letter. The next section we have, Paul is writing about his joyous thanksgiving. And verses 3 to 6 are all one great big long sentence in the Greek. And he's he's thanking God for the Philippians. He says, I thank God for you every time you come to mind. And as we see this thankful section, we could dig into a number of things here, but we see he's, he's thankful when he remembers his friends, and you could circle remembrance there. He's, he's demonstrating his thankfulness as he prays for those friends. And we get a glimpse later of what Paul prays for the church, and it's a brilliant little prayer from verses 9 to 11. We're going to see that in a bit. And we see that, that Paul's prayer life is, is, is deep, it's robust, and it's filled with gratitude and joy. And maybe I don't need to say this again, but I will anyways. He's in a prison cell, just exuding gratitude and joy. Now, how many of us have it way better than Paul, yet we still struggle to find joy? One commentator helpfully reminds us here that we have to distinguish between chasing after worldly joy and Christian joy. 
Worldly joy requires delightful circumstances, while Christian joy depends on a deep-seated delight in Christ, not on circumstances. Elizabeth Elliot said it well, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. But what I want to focus on in this little piece here is, is why Paul is so thankful for this little church. And in verse 5, he highlights it for it. He says, I thank my God because of your partnership in the gospel, even from the first day. Now this word partnership comes from the the same root word that we have fellowship from. And and often if we think of the word fellowship, if the word fellowship means anything to us, we think of maybe having coffee after the service and chatting with one another to catch up on each other's weeks. Or a a meal or a, a potluck, let's be serious. But Paul's talking about something much deeper than that. He talks about their partnership here in verse 5, and then look down at how he sort of explains what the partnership is in verse 7. He says, you're all partners with me in grace. There's that same verse. So if you're highlighting, you can circle partnership in 5 and draw an arrow to partner in verse 7. He says, you're all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This isn't a potluck dinner he's talking about. This is, we're on a team, we're on a mission, we are headed for something, and you guys are with me in this, and I'm with you in this, and we're going to figure it out, and this is greater than any of us separately, and it's greater than all of us together, but we're, we're on this together. This fellowship is having a common goal that brings people together and, and points them in the same direction. This their partnership and fellowship is one in the gospel where it, it costs. Paul's in prison. And sacrifices are made. But they're unified around Jesus in the gospel. Paul, former persecutor of the church. Lydia, a servant girl, the blue-collar jailer, and their church. This fellowship goes far beyond just friendship. As Kent Hughes notes, he says, fellowship occur, occurs among friends committed to a common cause or a goal and flourishes through their common pursuit of it. He goes on to remind us of another fellowship that builds off this reality. Maybe you've heard of this one. J.R.R. Tolkien, in his Fellowship of the Ring, rides on this reality, he says. The Fellowship of the Ring is made up of individuals of different origins and ridiculous diversity that exceed any of our ethnic or social differences. There's four hobbits, tiny beings with large, hairy, shoeless feet, Frodo Baggins and his friends, Mary, Sam, and Pippin. There's two men, warriors of first rank, always dressed for battle, Boromir of Gondor and Aragorn, son of Arathorn, king of Gondor. There's a wizard, Gandalf, the ancient nemesis of evil and a repository of wisdom and supernatural power. There's an elf, Legolas, from a fair race of archers of the forest with pointed ears and a dwarf, Gimli, a stout, hairy, axe-wielding creature from the dark chambers under the mountains. These nine members of the fellowship bore few affinities. The elves and dwarves are like the English and the French because they had an unspoken agreement to feel superior to one another. Yet the nine very different individuals were bound together by their great mission to defeat the forces of darkness and save Middle-earth. They became inseparable and their covenant was insoluble. The man Boromir, despite his lapses, gave his life for the hobbits. The elf and the dwarf came to form a great friendship, so great that Gimli was inducted into an honored order reserved only for elves. Do we experience that kind of unity around mission today? 
Are we unified by, by the, the mission of, of making disciples who make disciples, who, who plant churches that plant churches of not just convenient people around us, but of all nations? Do we recognize that, that we're on a mission to, to go together? We're part of something so much larger than any one of, one of us apart. How do we experience this today? Let me suggest a couple of things. We need to head back to how Paul introduced the letter. We need to embrace our identities of servant and a saint. We need to embrace the gospel, recognize that the gospel and fellowship isn't just uh, having a meal together, though that's part of it. We commit ourselves to the mission that, that, that God's plan for drawing the world to himself is his church going out. We commit to serving together, to praying together, to going after lost people and bringing them into a relationship with Jesus as one, together. And as we do this, we have the hope in who Jesus is and that he, as Paul writes in verse 6, he who began a good work of drawing us to him and conforming us to him will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This good work is God's saving work in our lives. We're all in process, but none of us have it figured out yet. None of them had it figured out. But God has promised that he will do the work and he will work this plan and completion in us so we can rest in that hope and we can continue to go forward with confidence. Finally, the last bit of the section we read earlier is Paul's introductory prayer. Uh, And just before I read it for us, a quick note again of, of how we can read these letters in the Bible. The introductory prayers to the letters always hint at what's to come. Always hint at, at what the, the teaching is going to be, whether it's uh, encouragement in this one, whether it's correction in other ones. So as you read the prayer, look, out, look for some sort of key words and then keep an eye out for those things as you read through the letter. Let me read for us verses 9 to 11. Paul says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, if we're familiar with Paul's writings elsewhere in the New Testament, it's not unusual that Paul would highlight love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he says, love is even greater than faith and hope. But here he's praying for a specific kind of love. Did you notice that? He's praying for one that's discerning and knowing. He's praying for this combination that, that, that they would have love and wisdom kind of sewed up together. Mark Dever, who's a pastor and writer out of the, uh, Washington, D.C., says, Paul knows that wise love makes wise lives and that foolish love makes foolish lives. I like that. As we sort of talked about last week when we were talking about growing and how we are, we are hearted people and we are desiring people, it's kind of the same idea here, right? Paul says you have to give your heart, you have to give your love, you have to chase after the right things, the wise things. You have to have a, a wise love so that you can have a, a wise life marked by things like purity and blamelessness and righteousness until Christ returns. He doesn't want them to have love or knowledge, because he knows that love without knowledge is just squishy and spineless sentimentalism. And knowledge without love, he's already, or he says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, is, is meaningless. But Paul calls for both knowledge and love, light and heat. And he wants the church to be able to, to test and approve what's best. 
And this reflects what Paul wrote to, Rome, to the Romans too, in Romans 12 too, where he says, you know, we want you to have a, a renewing of your mind so that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What a, what a great prayer that Paul prays for this little church. What a great prayer that we can pray for one another to, to have a, a discerning love so that we wouldn't know just what's good, but what's best. Maybe as a bit of an aside, if you are trying to pray for people and you're, you're not totally sure how to pray for them, or maybe I can issue a bit of a challenge. If you have a church directory and there's some extra copies at the back, you can sign up and take one home. Uh, pray through the directory. Pray through your list of friends. Pray through your, your phone book on your phone or something. And if you are going through the directory and you get stuck, if you don't know the family you're praying for, because we're a smaller church, but we're not that small, chances are there are people here that you don't know that well, choose a prayer like this one and pray it for them. Or flip through any of the letters in the New Testament, Paul's letters maybe especially, and and dig out those prayers of Paul and pray that for them. Maybe this week we can, we can all commit to praying these couple verses, verses 9 to 11, for, for someone or each day for a different someone. Back to these verses as we dig into them a little bit. Paul says uh, that he prays for this love uh, with knowledge and discernment so that the church would be fixed on excellent things. And the result would be purity and completeness. They would be pure and blameless, he says. This isn't a kind of purity that that you and I can strive for or achieve on our own. I suppose we could strive for it, but we won't achieve it on our own. This is a divine gift that Paul is reminding them of. If we are followers of Jesus, we will only be pure and blameless if we are, as verse 11 says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul hints at the fruit of the Spirit that he writes elsewhere. Says the, the, as you follow Jesus, as you commit to this identity of, of servant and saint, God will continue to work in you and through you, and, and these things will, will be the result of that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This purity, this blamelessness will come. And God's going to keep working these things out in us. He almost requotes verse 6 for us. And this fruitfulness comes out of the righteousness of God that's found in Jesus Christ. The last thing, the last thing we want to note in this prayer is look at why Paul prays for these things. He says, I hope that you are all these things, you're, you're good, you're pure, you're blameless, that it reflects well on me as your church planter. That's not what he says at all. Maybe if you do enough good, they'll let me out of the cell. No. Do these things to the glory and praise of God. That's everything. So what should we do with these introduction words other than just kind of mine them for what's to come in the letter? Let me suggest three things. The first, uh, we need to remember the blessing that it is to belong to Christ. It's really easy to, to read through a letter and say, okay, Paul's just introducing the topic. Let's get on to the meat of this thing and skip what's here. To miss that that servant, to miss that saint, to miss that grace and peace. We should take a minute or so and and wrestle with and consider the amazing, unfathomable blessing that it is to belong to Christ, both now and forever. As one writer said, the feast of Christ is a forever feast that satisfies far more than a few worldly crumbs ever could. The second thing 
we can remember the God-centered security of our salvation. We can celebrate that, that God has done the work and that we're secure in that work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. And it always was and always will be God's work that rescues us in verses 5 and 6. Marcus Bachmiel points out that Christian assurance doesn't rest in our Christianness of our Christianity, but in the Godness of God. It's His work. The power to save us doesn't come from us, but the assurance of salvation rests in, in not how, how tight our grip is on the Father's hand, but on how strong His grip is on ours. And finally, we need to remember to glorify God. That's why we exist to be pointers to his glory. We live a holy and loving life not to point to the work we do, and, and, but rather to point to the fruit of God that's growing in and through us in Christ. When people around us look at us and see the things we do, the lives we live, they should say, what a great God, not what a great person, or what a great neighbor, or what a great co-worker, or whatever else. We want to be pointing people to God, to, to glorify him. God's name would be, should be the one set apart as something to be valued above all else when, when people can see what he's done in and through us as his people. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. Thank you for this little letter to the Philippians. I pray, God, uh, that we wouldn't just uh, head out from here and, and either anticipate what's to come in the letter, but God, remind us of our identities, servants and saints. Remind us of the, the peace and grace that comes from you through Jesus' work. Remind us that, that we are works in progress and you are working things out for your good and in our lives. And you'll bring that work to completion. And remind us of some of these just glorious prayers. Let us also uh, grow in love that's filled with knowledge and discernment. So we can know not just what's good, but what's best. Jesus, thank you uh, for your work on the cross for us, that you came to show us how to relate to God and others and creation, that you went to the cross for us, you took our, uh, the consequences of our sin and rebellion and, and, and took them on your shoulders and died on the cross for us. We thank you that you were raised back to life on the third day, conquering our three greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And now you are seated at the right hand of God, uh, praying for, interceding us, and, and your righteousness has been given to us as we have faith in you. We thank you for that work. God, I, I pray for fruit. I pray for your fruit to grow in us as we chase after you. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.